My name is Claire Press and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell them go because everything is just fine. I've been wanting to interview Elisa Goodkind for ages. And I finally got to do it recently. I Skyped her at her new home in Brooklyn. She'd just moved in. But I've got to say, the recording was not without its challenges. There are heaps of people around. It's quite echoey. And there are dogs barking. So actually, it's an interview with Elisa and her dog, Clark. (laughs) But please bear with us because it's really, really, really worth listening to. Elisa's message is amazing. And she is an absolute legend. Elisa Goodkind has a vision. She wants to see style disentangled from fashion. She wants us to take back our power from the big media companies, from advertising and the corporate money-driven global fashion business, so that getting dressed each day becomes, as she puts it, an act of self-love. Imagine. Elisa and her daughter Lily Mandelbaum are the jewel force behind Style Like You, which if you haven't come across it yet, you're going to love. It's all about embracing our uniqueness and recognizing that we're all unrepeatable. It's this kind of glorious, groundbreaking, I'm going to call it a movement because it's more than just videos and a book. It really is this kind of groundswell of, of community. And it's all about redefining our relationship with style and breaking down the fake stereotypes about what's considered beautiful. I first fell in love with all this via their videos, which in the last few years have gone viral. You can check them out at their website, which is stylelikeyou.com. And the U is the letter U, by the way. Or you can hop onto their YouTube channel. And I will be sharing a bunch of links in the show notes to this episode. These films, which began by kind of delving into people's wardrobes, have evolved into these performance pieces, these riveting video interviews in which the subjects gradually disrobe. So as they tell their stories, they take off their clothes and it becomes this wonderful, compelling, moving, intimate experience. Elisa and Lily have also just published an awesome new book, which is called True Style is What's Underneath. In this episode, we're going to hear from Elisa and and how she's mad at mainstream fashion. She calls it out for making us feel shit about ourselves, for its lack of diversity and for responding to that with tokenism. She thinks commercial fashion basically stifles creativity. And I mean, she she totally rejects it. And yet she used to be part of it at its very core. She used to work at Self magazine. She's been a stylist. She's worked with some of the biggest names in fashion. And in this episode, we talk about 
how how she's seen it change and how and why that world that she fell in love with as a stylist working for Condé Nast in New York in the 80s has disappeared. You're going to love hearing her stories about dropping by her friend Mark Jacobs' fifth floor walk-up when Mario Testino was just another kid with a camera and about a time when young designers didn't need a load of money to get started, when they'd all go to each other's shows and fashion was a lot more kind of friendly and collaborative. Elisa describes the fashion industry at this time as less mean. And we talk about Elisa and Lily's ultimate message, which is that personal style emanates from one's comfort with oneself. We are recording. I'm such a fan of style like you. I watch all your videos and now you have this book and you're going to about to go to Europe and make more magic there and more videos there. Tell us about true style is what's underneath. Well, basically what it means is that style and beauty is, is about a comfort in your skin and about self-acceptance and embracing what is unrepeatable in yourself rather than feeling as though you need to change yourself you know, to be stylish or to feel beautiful, to be acceptable in society. So it's really taking everything that we're told that we need to be certain hair color and a certain style hair and be a certain age and be this one, you know, dimensional person in order to be beautiful. We're, we're inverting all of that and saying that actually, you know, beauty and style is something that is infinitely multidimensional and multifaceted and you know, that it's about each person's complete uniqueness and what is unrepeatable in them and that no one person is like the other. Oh, as a matter of fact, I'm wearing one of our T-shirts. We we have T-shirts and when we get our acts together, we're going to sell them better on our website. But this says Disentangle Style from Fashion. That's the first chapter of our book. So our book is broken down into seven chapters and they're manifestos that Lily and I came up with that were based on what we've learned from interviewing all these brilliant people. We just sat and stared at all of them on a wall for like weeks and weeks and weeks and like thought, what have we learned from these people? You know, another chapter is consumed consciously, which is not just about going green, but also who are you following? Are they enhancing and empowering you or are they disempowering you? So it's like taking these steps to kind of start to step back and see where you are giving your power away. And that's a form of activism, you know, to just, even my neighbor this morning, my new neighbor was walking to work and she was like, I said, oh, are you going to work? And she said, yeah. And she, and she got right away. She said, I hate what I'm wearing. Cause the other day over the weekend, you know, she would look so amazing. And I was like, oh, he looks so amazing. And she, and then today she goes, I hate what I'm wearing. It's not me. And I said, well, don't wear it. Like go to work and what you feel like going to work and see what happens. And she goes, oh, okay. Maybe I'll try that. It's so funny because the little things can be really powerful, can't they? Yes. And I feel like if all of us start to do these things and start to own our brains again, because really we don't own our brains when you start to look at it, and that's really the scary thing. The little acts of rebellion. The little acts of rebellion are reclaiming your, you're reclaiming yourself. Why has it taken us so long to get here? I feel like we're only at the very beginning of starting to see a broader idea of beauty in the fashion industry. Do you see that happening like on the runway and campaigns? Are we finally seeing a bit of a, a broadening of the lens? I mean, I think that there's a teeny tiny bit of it, but it's still really, really token. You know, I still think if you look at the cover, established magazines and big brands and all that, they obviously feel a certain imperative 
you know, from the public and a pressure, but not not enough. I think it's it's beginning, and there's you know there's there's talk, and they've accepted sort of curvy um, as something, but now it's just kind of the new curvy, the new the new body, you know, like the the new perfect curvy person, and and they're all the same body too. You also have like it's like oh we need to cast one curvy girl or one trans model or one it's sort of tokenistic, right? Yeah, was like we recently had a write up in the New York Times and. Ruth LaFarella, who wrote about us, said that there was literally one one person who was over 50, Lauren Hutton, in an ad this year. So, you know, we're just still really made to feel like we there's something wrong with everything that is the most natural and beautiful. Even from just an aesthetic point of view, I think we need that innovation instead of the same kind of, you know, like repeating 1994 you know, over and over and over again in everything. It's like the same shoe, the same clothes. You know, there's like, there's no bottom-up culture. Because of, of money ruling everything, you know, everything is created from a boardroom instead of where it should be, which is from wild voice of youth and, um, you know, pure innovation and things that we have never seen before. I mean, I can remember, I think we still do it, in Mags, we used to talk about shoots with non-models as being real people shoots. And in right. fact, I reckon they still say that. And that's like this tacit agreement yeah. that the view of beauty we're presenting is not real. You know, it's become completely exclusive and completely debilitating to the point of, I think, being criminal. You know, it's just become so extreme. The retouching and the very, very, very narrow, constantly commodified, whatever the new commodity is, just, you know, just driving money, 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 money. So it's Kim Kardashian and whatever, it just becomes the new thing. And excluding just how deeply multifaceted we are as people. And I just think not only is it for our inner beings and for our spirits and for the wellness of humanity, is this needed so badly, but I also think it's from a purely aesthetic, exciting point of view, you know, it's also needed because there's been nothing new. To me, what's the most exciting thing is that fashion and style is something that is about the evolution of of a person and their inner world and who they are and how they embody those. And to me, that's so unbelievably exciting. That to me would be what would be really inspiring. But what you do is inspiring. What you and Lily do is flipping that thinking completely. And that's obviously why you started to do it. But I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about the evolution of that. And in fact, let's let's rewind. Elisa, when did you become a stylist? When did you get into the fashion industry? Well, it was right when I got out of college and I had been an art history major and I didn't really even know that you could work. I didn't even know what fashion or being a fashion editor or stylist or any of that was. No, it was like, you know, early 80s. There there wasn't really even a stylist yet. I think like while I was working, that was, you know, something that just sort of in those days, it, it became created then, you know, we, there were fashion editors. And so I, I got a job at Condé Nast and they were just starting Self Magazine and I was the assistant to everybody. It was like five or four or five amazing, amazing, amazing people that I was, oh, I was just completely enamored with and they were all very, very unique. You know, the the beauty editor, the fashion editor, the creative director, they were all these fascinating people, very different, unique in their style and who they were. And there was no brand names and there was no everybody wearing the same thing, you know, black skinny jeans with slit at the knee. It was like each, you know, one was like kind of dressed like the French lieutenant's woman and another was head to toe. She's in our book actually. And we did a closet video on her, Mary Randolph Carter. 
you know, she still is the same, you know, in the Navajo blankets and incredible early American sort of Ralph Lauren, you know, but like a total original. I really evolved, you know, from this world. And from there, I mean, I was an assistant and then I quickly started to do my own shoots and I was traveling all over the world and I was working for um, the tippy tippy top photographers, you know, like Mario Testino, you know, I think I gave him one of his first jobs, actually. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, Bill King and Albert Watson. And it was just an amazing world in the 80s in New York. And we were paid to discover. So we were, you know, we were given expense accounts to dig all around New York, go out all night. Um, And look for the fashion people and the new designers and the cool scenes. I found Mark Jacobs. You found Mark Jacobs. Well, I mean, I went to his fifth floor walk up on the Lower East Side and I was one of the first people to give him a credit. Yeah. And I knew, right, you know, and then we became great friends and like Kenneth Cole put his first pairs of shoes on my desk and Oliver Peoples and Bobby Brown was a good friend. And it was just this really, 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 really innovative, creative time in New York. And the fashion shows, a designer wasn't coming with a big expense account or with a business plan. You know, they were these creative, brilliant geniuses that came out of nowhere with no money, almost like peddling, you know, on the streets and living in the East Village and, the, and downtown and every block and everywhere you went, there were people hammering behind a door making jewelry or like, you know, it was just wildly creative and it was so much fun to do. And editorials were really editorials. We could use all, all of these people's clothes. It wasn't like advertisers head to toe. I think listeners might be interested to understand how that works now because in magazines now you will have to represent advertisers and many, many shoots are only advertisers. It was happening 10 years ago. Like I literally would have a list, like I would do an editorial shoot pretty much post 9-11. We stopped getting paid for doing editorial shoots, freelance stylists. We had to spend our own money. Photographers had to spend their own money for the privilege of doing it. And we would still do it because we were so hungry to be creative. And But then we would have these lists that we would get just inches, inches thick of advertisers that we had to put on the page, diamond advertisers. It was awful. Like just, you know, it, it got to a point where we had to put many, many on one page. That didn't go together. Yeah. So we, no, not at all. Like I would have to tear up guest dresses and tie them in their hair or put them on the couch or You know, it was just, and like, here we are, like, you know, doing this for no money and just for creativity. And and, and then at the end of the day, we're just selling advertising, you know, and um, yeah, so I was so disillusioned over the course of 20 years of being in the business and then dropping out for a little while, teaching yoga when my kids were younger and then going back and seeing how much, you know, more narrow it had become and like, you know, with, with the pages filled with the advertisers and really no designers be, being able to break into the scene anymore that, you know, weren't already established or already anointed by Vogue magazine or already had a business plan, you know, the same. And then celebrities and the same five people and the same five designers, the same five celebrities always on all the covers. And, you know, I just felt more and more and more oppressed. And I couldn't, I actually couldn't stop crying. I would go to the fashion shows and, you know, nobody's talking to each other, you know, this sort of mean kind of hierarchical, you know, sort of Anna Wintour Vogue thing had taken over. And, you know, fashion had become kind of mean, where it was once so collaborative, you know, a designer would have a show like in some weird, you know, in a garage, in a 
garbage dump. I don't know, like anywhere everyone would run to them. Like it would be so much fun and exciting to see their vision. Over time, everything had just become so formula and so kind of mean and exclusive and predictable and not warm and friendly and not lacking the joy of what I had first discovered and what I really feel it was all about. God, it's interesting Um, to hear you talk about mean versus warm and inclusive because I think that lots of people look at the fashion industry today and feel like it's exactly that. It's mean and exclusive and it doesn't welcome them and it doesn't seem like a place that that real people in inverted commas are allowed to enter. People are scared. They feel like you talk about fashion and they think shallow and they think scary. Your daughter, Lily, who you work with on your project, which you've been running for about eight years or so, Lily's talked about feeling insecure about her body in her teenage years and about dieting and worrying about fitting into skinny jeans. And I feel like this is a common story, but do you want to talk to me a little bit about that, about how she felt as a teenager, as a young woman growing up, seeing what she saw in advertising campaigns on runways in magazines? She hated fashion growing up. She felt that she had to change herself. And, you know, she dieted. She felt she really couldn't develop her individuality or her personality. And she was so, you know, kind of infiltrated with this image of like this kind of caffeine addicted kind of Kate Moss, Mary Kate Nashley, super, super skinny, wafy girl. She is very voluptuous and Amazonian. And she thought that there was something wrong with her. So here I am sort of having my own sort of crisis of feeling incredibly frustrated creatively. And she's having her crisis of feeling like there's something wrong with her and like she has to change herself in order to feel beautiful and to have style. And at at a certain point, we just kind of looked at each other and said, we're really unhappy with this culture. And we didn't really totally get what we were stepping into, you know, like what we understand now. But we knew that there was something wrong and that we weren't happy with it. So we decided to pick up a home video camera. We had no idea how to shoot a thing like on a camera at all. And we just started to film, go into people's homes and film the people who we felt were inspiring. So your friends. And we were. People you knew. Your people in our world. Uh Uh-huh. We picked everyone and we very, very purposely picked all the black sheep. One (laughs) video to the next was a different age, a different race, a different sexuality, a different gender, a different body a different class like we purposely wanted to subvert this I remember being very clear on you know you'd go to an airport after a while and you look at all the covers of those fashion magazines 10 years ago and it's still as bad the same and every single face is the same blonde straight hair same age retouched smiley face like all ethnicity is erased you know all individuality is erased that's what started the closet videos We've done like almost a thousand of those and, you know, going to people's homes and interviewing them about style, like what was, you know, people that really made your head turn and had this certain ease and comfort in their skin and way and way about them that you were just kind of like you wanted to know more about them and what it is that made them who they are. So um, we got really deep into these interviews and we very purposely got deep because, you know, in the media is just so shallow asking the same questions like what are you wearing for spring and who's your new boyfriend and then it's like the same five people and so we purposely did everyone else yeah it's such a powerful thing it's really it's powerful to flip that is I mean I can see exactly why it went viral because people have a hunger for real it makes sense 
Yeah, I like to feel jelly, you know, instead of like, you know, even the street style, we purposely did video because we were like, okay, well, this is still intimidating because everyone looks at it and goes, oh, all these fashion people in the street, I can never look like that. You know, we really wanted to unpack that. It got to a certain point where we didn't really care that much even about the clothes. Then we decided to just like take it another step and invite these same types of people into a studio and sit on a stool and take their clothes off. Yeah, so what what led to that? So the what's underneath idea, I mean, it's very powerful, but at what point do you go, hang on, this works better if you strip away the clothing? We used to always say, I used to say to Lily that I can tell when people have style when they're naked. So somehow that idea, along with doing the closets, you know, we're, we're stripping them down in, a, in another kind of a way where, you know, we were just getting really deep into their heart and soul, spending like literally interviewing them for like six hours or something. Purposely, very purposely, the opposite of like how it is now, like they ask five questions and it's goodbye. Somehow the collision of that, uh, those two ideas led to having, you know, pe- the, the same type of people and have them take their clothes off. Will you take Clark? What kind of puppy is Clark? So Clark is my son's dog, and he's my favorite. He's my absolute favorite, but he's super um, rambunctious. He's a puppy. He's really, 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 really rambunctious. Like he, he could literally run around a football field all day and still keep running. I so have a question about Clark. Funny. Can Clark have style? Because I always love when Diana Vreeland used to say a panther has style. You know, you talked before about how you can have style naked. Can a dog have style? Can the ocean have style? Absolutely. Like Vreeland said, what is style? I mean, I think the nature always has the best style because I actually, when I look at nature, like trees and grass and sky and all that, I'm always designing clothes in my head too. Or thinking, oh, that would be like, imagine having that color yeah. sweater or that skirt or, you know, like it's, it's the most beautiful of all, for sure. And I love like every little detail, like the way it looks like they have liner on their eyes. So what is style to you coming back to the people that you interview and that Lily interviews? What does style mean to you? Who's got it? How does it translate? It means, it means- yeah, it means being comfortable in self-love, being comfortable in your skin. Why do we need a self-acceptance revolution? And I'm using your words. Oh, we need it desperately <laughs> because we live in a society that tells everyone basically that they're not good enough so that we buy things. Then that's what happened with what's underneath when we started to shoot. The level of disdain that people have for their bodies and what they've had to go through um, to get to a place of acceptance is so, is so profound. To me, it's, it's criminal. It's a criminal act. How annoyed are you by it? I'm very annoyed. <laughs> I'm extremely annoyed. I mean, I guess, that, I guess that can fuel action, can't it? I mean, I like that idea that if you feel pissed off about something, then that's when you want to get up and change it. And that's what you're both doing, you yeah. and Lily. Oh, definitely. But I mean, we've both gone through a lot, so much since doing this. I've gone through so much transformation within myself because... Um, you know, before I started it, I, I had taught yoga and I had been a meditator and I always had a very strong spiritual side. But um, I was more pissed off, I'd say, at the beginning. I'm still pissed off, but I have been studying a lot of Buddhism and I meditate like an hour a day. You know, I've needed to while doing this because this is like a lot of work and a lot of putting out. And I love it and I get so much back from it. But 
I'm learning more and more time goes on, even from the people that we interview, because at the end of the day, they're all heroes to me. They're all incredibly brave and they're very loving people and they're very accepting people. And even of, of the perpetrator, we just shot someone for the Allure series. I watched um, some of it. Gosh, I watched Cara Reedy and I was like, wow. What? I mean, that makes you mad, doesn't it? So just for listeners yeah. who haven't seen it, the Allure magazine series is called Dispelling Beauty Myths. And a couple of examples of some of the amazing and beautiful women who are interviewed in this series are Cara Reedy, who has dwarfism and who talks about the idea of beauty being a tall, skinny white woman. And it's just so... It's just so, it's very, very affecting. And there's another, um, I forgot her name, but there's a, a woman with alopecia. Uh, we just did one coming out this week on a girl um, who was shot by a gang members in Florida. And she was 16 at the time and just at the wrong place at the wrong time. She saved a little boy's life next to her sitting in the car. And she, it, the bullet went through one hip and through her small intestine and bladder and she can't have kids and she and she one leg doesn't really work her memory because she lost so much blood is gone and she can't be a doctor and at the end of the day she's 22 now she's a huge spokesperson for gun control and all of them are like this with what's underneath everyone we interview and everyone at dispelling beauty myths at the end of the day they they wouldn't trade their experience they all believe that their experience has made them who they are it's interesting to me that you're working with Allure on this. So that's an example of a, a mainstream magazine shifting the conversation away from what we've been used to. That's cool. Definitely. And they, they, it's so cool. And they've been amazing. They've given us, you know, total creative freedom. They've been incredible. We've really been able to do just exactly what we want to be doing. We have no complaints. They've been amazing. The only thing is, you know, for us, we, our videos are generally very long and our audience is used to it. But with them, we have to make them more like five or six minutes. But because that's ultimately makes them go more viral and everything, which is fine. And we learn from that. That's an art in and of itself. Elisa, would you be able to share a couple more stories about perhaps some of the, I know it's impossible to have favorites, but just to share about some of the people that you have interviewed for What's Underneath. I mean, I could share some of my favorites. What are some of yours? Maybe Melanie Gatos is someone, you know, like she's the model that has ectoderma dysplasia, that she's bald and she has a cleft palate. To me, she's just exemplifies beauty. Today, if I was going to cast a fashion shoot and, you know, do a high fashion shoot, I don't even think there's enough good clothes out there. <clears throat> but anyway, but to like style a shoot, I would use Melanie because I feel she's so diametrically outside of the existing beauty norms that to me, she's the most exquisite beauty. I find her just like an ethereal, like an elf or like a fairy or something. And I... And I adore her beauty. And I think she would make clothes just come to life completely. But I could see everybody that we've shot, like, you know, embodying clothes and, you know, in, in, in ad campaigns and everything, literally everybody, that would be my vision. But Melanie stands out as just sort of the message is really loud and clear. But I mean, I really do love them all. Like, it's so hard to say, you know, one over the other. I think Alok, who's trans, um, he's just so brilliant. Alok Vade Menon. I think he's a future leader of the world. He's brilliant. He went to Stanford University. His video is brilliant on the patriarchy and the binary system that we live under and, and how someone like himself who does not feel he needs to change his body to be feminine 
and feels that he has the right to exhibit whatever kind of gender he wants to exhibit within the body he was born in. That video is just so brilliant. He says amazing, amazing, amazing things. So everyone who's listening to this should definitely not miss that. Obviously, people have embraced in large numbers the ideas behind what you're doing. Let's talk about some of those reactions, some of those events you hold in the open days and how people are embracing this because we need it. Like, what's the kind of cool side to this that people are really warming to the message you're putting out? Oh, my God. That, that's that been such a revelation is are doing these open calls because these large audiences gather and they're so supportive of the person that's doing it. And it becomes this whole kind of entire experience for everybody, even if you're not the person being interviewed. So that was a real surprise to us because we thought that, first of all, no one is going to want to do this in front of people, you know, but they're actually fine and they feel the support of the people around them. And, you know, it's almost a little bit like performance art or something or like theater, but it's so just warm and accepting and community. And does it break the intimacy of an interview to then be having this interview made public before it's published, if you like? Actually, it doesn't because it's, I mean, we, we're still experimenting with this. We did it in London. That was an amazing experience. That was the first time. And that, you know, maybe was like a crowd of like, I don't know, like 50 or so or 60. And then we did it in New York and that was about the same kind of crowd. And that was all fine. It didn't ruin the intimacy. We, in Toronto recently, we did it and it was more like 400 people wow. or 500. And I have to say that personally, I was a little bit freaked out, <laughs> but I, you know, I held it together and it was fine, but we're still figuring this out. You know, for us, we feel it's like a way, it's almost like a modern day march or protest, or, you know, it's like having the guts to do it, being the participant there. It almost like the bigger we can make this, the more impact we can have. So that's, that's, you know, that's my sort of idealistic vision of it. It, you know, so maybe as the crowds get bigger, maybe we simplify the questions a little bit in the process, but it's really just a symbolic of people taking their power back Yeah. Um, against the marketing machine and just saying, I'm fine exactly where I am right here as I am. And you, you can't tell me otherwise. We have to see where that goes. That's kind of my idealistic vision that it's like in the middle of Times Square and around the Eiffel Tower and because the most important thing is that everybody gets this message and gets liberated. So, you know, we're still trying to work out how to best do that and how to make this as big as we possibly can so that we really, as a collective, you in taking the time to interview us, you're a part of it. You know, everyone that's listening, they're a part of it. Everyone that watches the videos, everyone that buys the book. So all of that's very important. Activism today is in all of these acts. You know, it's like, it's even just getting up in the morning and deciding what is me and what is not me. What is fashion? What is style? Getting dressed each day becomes an act of self-love. It's time for a revolution. Yeah. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that. 
because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Yeah, you know that song.